Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Journalist Linda Villarosa has been covering health and healthcare for decades. Much of her writing focuses on issues affecting Black Americans. Linda says there's been a common chilling theme. Black people lived sicker and died quicker. A lot of them dying from preventable and treatable illnesses. Such as diabetes, heart disease, stroke, asthma, things that people shouldn't be dying young of. Linda wrote about this in her book, Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. She says that early on in her career, when she was working for Essence magazine, she thought the solution could be found in better lifestyle choices, that more education and information could close this gap. If you knew better, you did better. So she wrote a lot of self-help pieces. A favorite was... Put down the salt shaker, and here's ways to cook with lemon and herbs, or how to uh, make so-called soul food with less fat. Linda also thought that poverty was a big contributor, that economic disparities were a major driver of bad health outcomes. Then Harold Freeman, a black physician at Harlem Hospital, invited her to shadow him for a day. And Linda says the visit was eye-opening. His patient that really stuck out for me was a black woman who was working in, you know, lower Manhattan. She came for her appointment because she had breast pain. And when she took off her shirt to be examined, she had a huge lesion that was discolored. I mean, painful. And so the obvious question was, why didn't you come sooner? The doctor asked gently, and the woman said she had been afraid, afraid of a serious diagnosis, of dying and leaving her son with nobody to take care of him. But beyond that, she was afraid of the healthcare system, even though she was seeing a black physician. That surprised Linda. And also that she wasn't poor. She had health insurance. She had covered. She had a job. But there were bigger barriers to the healthcare system and to even the fear around it than I understood. This issue really hit home for Linda when her own father had a health emergency. She got an urgent call from her mother who told her to come right away. Her mom said, make sure you look professional. And when Linda arrived at the airport, her mother was also really dressed up. I'm like, Mom, what are we doing? And she said, your dad is in the hospital. They're treating him like an N-word. We went to the hospital. He was a very well-dressed person. Like, he um, had a master's degree in bacteriology. He was very educated, very, I would call him courtly. But to see him in sort of a dirty hospital gown, his hair was a mess. He had insisted on going to a veteran's hospital. And um, he was shackled to the bed with restraints. (gasps) And so, you know, I I leaned down and he just said, get me out of here. And my mom is very savvy. She had worked in a hospital before. So we went home. We got pictures of him before he was ill. We got his military medals. We explained to them that 
My dad was agitated. But if you don't restrain him, if you explain things, he's very educated in science. He'll understand. Plus, having us there as advocates was really important, and people stopped, you know, treating him like that. But he ended up passing away not so long after that, but I remembered that. I said, why did we have to play that so-called class and education card? Why wasn't he just getting the kind of treatment he deserved? Like Linda Villarosa, so many people have wrestled with the inequality of care and outcomes. Researchers, healthcare systems, and advocates are working to close the disparities, and they're looking for solutions. On this episode, Black Health, what will lead to better healthcare for all patients? When it comes to health disparities, we often hear about the lack of access to care, especially health insurance. People don't seek care because they can't afford it. They don't have insurance. But a lot of people who are insured still don't go to the doctor. Insurance companies all over the country struggle with this issue, getting people to take advantage of their health plans, to get annual checkups, routine screens, or to manage chronic conditions. One black physician is trying to change that. Dan Gorenstein from the health policy podcast Tradeoffs has this profile. Dr. Lisa Fitzpatrick has done a lot in her career. They're the usual things. I've worked for Medicaid. I've been a clinician, a researcher. There are the really cool jobs. I've served as a global health diplomat. I was an epidemic intelligence service officer, and some people refer to that as the medical CIA. But beyond her day jobs, Lisa spent much of her time doing something more basic, translating health care for those who feel confused or left out. People feeling disconnected, people feeling unheard, people fearful of things they don't know. Lisa is a black physician, and in this job, she's been a trusted, plain-spoken messenger for her friends, family, and patients. People desperately sending me text messages to help them understand the information that's being given to them. I was always thinking about, how can I reach more people because if you don't understand something, it, it can be very scary. And when you're afraid, you avoid, you delay. Lisa could break things down in a way that made sense to people, something she found was all too rare in the medical world. When a relative dies in the hospital and you don't get a satisfactory explanation for why, or you feel as if someone gave you inferior care but you don't know who to talk to, What happens? It creates a lot of fear, a lot of distrust, and that information is passed on throughout the family from generation to generation. She was always thinking about this general lack of information, the suffering it caused, and how she could help more people understand healthcare better. Then, one night, she turned on NBC. What countries make up Great Britain? <laughs> um, so one day I was watching um, yeah. Jay Leno jaywalking. If someone said they're going to Great Britain, what language would they speak when they get there? British. They speak British. Okay. What he would do is go out on the streets of L.A. and he would talk to people, usually about um, geography, history, um, politics. What is the world's tallest mountain? Do you ever rest? I really don't know. 
See, I asked you, do you ever rest? And you said, oh, no. Oh, not Everest. Everest, there you go. There you go. So yeah. it was educational, but it was also entertaining. And I thought, what if I can do that with health? Lisa decided to run with this idea and give it a shot. Now, have you guys had a flu vaccine? Yes, I've had a flu vaccine. Back in 2013, while Lisa was working as a hospital administrator, she went onto the National Mall in Washington, D.C. with a cameraman she'd met at her local bike club and started talking to folks about the flu. And what if I gave you antibiotics? Would that help? It would. Is that okay? But your body can get immune to that, can't it? That's true, but antibiotics don't treat the flu because the flu's a virus. There you go. They edited down the footage and put a short video up on YouTube. Why they call it soul food? Why? Because that's the food that will get your your soul to heaven about as fast as it can get there. (laughs) She called it Dr. Lisa on the street. People in the community loved it. They wanted more. They gave suggestions. Can you make a video about this and that? Unlike Jay Leno, Lisa didn't play the interviews for laughs, no punchlines, just answering real questions in simple, non-judgmental ways. The key is to make sure it's relatable. The people in the content look like the people we're trying to reach and that the messages are resonating. Lisa remembers one woman hovering close by while she filmed near a hospital. When we wrapped up the shoot, she came over and she said, are you a doctor? And I said, yeah. She said, well, I wonder if you could help me. They just discharged me from the hospital, but I don't feel good. And they gave me this paper and I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. She'd been diagnosed with a blood clot in her lung, but the woman told Lisa she was still feeling short of breath. She was scared, but the paper didn't give her any instructions. So she was asking me, like a stranger on the corner, what do I do now? Lisa spent 30 minutes with the woman. After she walked away, Lisa stood there in a daze. I felt profoundly sad. I felt angry that we have all of this lip service around helping people, yet people feel forgotten. They feel like they're on their own, all alone. And with as many resources, we are pouring into healthcare. I think there's no excuse for that. This woman and all the others like her that Lisa talked to on the street helped confirm for Lisa that she'd zeroed in on a foundational but often invisible problem. The healthcare system was failing to give people, especially black people, the information they needed, and it was part of why people were suffering. Black Washingtonians, who make up 80% of the city's Medicaid population, are seven times more likely to have diabetes and more than twice as likely to die from heart disease than their white neighbors. Very bad health disparities, like striking health disparities. Lisa spent 20 years working at all levels of healthcare. Dr. Lisa on the street was a side hustle, something squeezed between board meetings and grand rounds. But then... I just decided to take a leap. Lisa left her job at DC Medicaid and, in March of 2019, founded Grapevine Health, a startup she believes can help build trust, provide information, and get people engaged with their own healthcare. When she's talking to insurance companies, she pitches her company as a bridge. We can help people understand. We can answer questions. We can make it more accessible for people. 
Lisa's starting to make headway. In just the last 20 months, Grapevine has landed contracts with two Medicaid-managed care plans, one public employee health plan, and Lisa is in talks with four national insurers. Insurers I talked to were all super excited about Lisa's work because it strikes at a problem that's plagued them forever, getting people to engage with their health care. Keith McCannon is an executive with AmeriHealth Caritas DC, a private health insurance plan that Washington DC's Medicaid program pays to cover the city's low-income and disabled residents. Keith has spent the last decade trying to figure out how to make sure the 120,000 people on his plan take advantage of their insurance, meet with specialists, take their meds, manage their chronic conditions like congestive heart failure and diabetes. Frankly, many of the things that we've been doing haven't been working. Keith's team sends reminders in the mail, posts on Instagram and Facebook, calls people at home. Keith says they're lucky if one out of every four people answer. Sometimes I think we're viewed as like a telemarketer. Engaging Medicaid patients is a national challenge. A recent report found that Medicaid insurance companies, like AmeriHealth, regularly connect with just 30 to 60% of their members. Insurers have a financial incentive to close that gap. Plans can't face fines if too few of their members get certain screenings or too many people end up in the hospital. And of course, if patients miss appointments or don't get these screenings, small issues can morph and people get sicker. There isn't any evidence out there that anybody's kind of found that magical crystal ball that's going to address some of these things that we're trying to move forward. But Keith hopes he and AmerHealth may have an answer with Lisa and Grapevine. What Dr. Lisa does, which I think is unique, is talk to people in a way that they understand it and just keep it very real on how it will make a difference in their lives. Lisa thinks her business is gaining traction because Grapevine answers a twofold problem. First, bad messages. Doctors and insurers talk about complex medical issues in ways that fly over the heads of most people. And second, bad messengers. Busy, stressed out docs, cold calls from an insurer, mailers that go straight into the trash. Lisa knows all too well the disparities that these issues help fuel. Black people report higher levels of mistrust in the healthcare system than white Americans and suffer worse outcomes in everything from maternal mortality to cancer deaths to life expectancy. So the stakes are high, and Lisa walked away from two decades of working in some of the most respected institutions to launch this health information startup geared towards marginalized communities of color. To really understand how to create more effective messages and become a better messenger, she took one more step. I moved into Congress Heights, which is one of the poorest zip codes in Washington, D.C., Lisa knew about the barriers people face from when she worked at D.C.'s Medicaid program and hospitals treating low-income patients. But seeing it up close, living it, was different. You're being bombarded with chronic stress because of the trauma, and I'm not talking about gun violence necessarily or carjackings. I'm talking about just the trauma associated with being poor, living in scarcity, having to fight for everything. 
unreliable bus service across town, few places to buy healthy food or exercise safely. Living with that same scarcity helped her see why it was so hard for her neighbors to prioritize their health in a community with lots of problems. But the experience made it easier for Lisa to craft messages that she hoped could break through all that stress and trauma. And it resonated for people like Yvonne Smith. Grapevine Health and Dr. Lisa are the best kept secret that I wish everyone knew about. Yvonne is 70. She lives alone on the second floor of a pale yellow apartment building a few minutes from where Lisa moved. Three huge binders sit on floor-to-ceiling bookshelves in Yvonne's living room, filled with her family history. I have a tree on both sides of my family that goes back seven generations. So I'm trying to beat the history of blindness, diabetes, heart problems. When Yvonne first encountered Lisa in early 2020, Grapevine Health was still a scrappy startup looking for its big break. But the pandemic gave Grapevine an opening. Hi, everybody. It's Dr. Lisa Fitzpatrick. And Lisa posted COVID-related videos on Grapevine's social media accounts. And I just wanted to spend a few minutes talking about some of the most common questions I'm Lisa also offered virtual information sessions to community groups like the senior center Avon attended. Avon loved how Lisa broke down information. She doesn't overwhelm you with big words. She talks plain language that I can understand and uh, she's genuine, authentic. Avon started sending questions to Lisa and Grapevine through her senior center and checking out their social media posts. Avon cut back on the carbs and filled her fridge with veggies. A dozen doctors had told Avon to lose weight over the years. But it was Lisa's videos that unlocked something for her. She knows the environment to live in. She knows we don't have one grocery store. And she moved to this community, and she was having a weight problem. So she understands that it might be difficult for you to get the things you need to be healthy. And she would do common sense things that are doable. Helpful, relatable advice. Grapevine took the time to answer her questions and tailor messages for people like her. It all gave Yvonne a sense that she was worth being taken seriously. Yvonne credits Grapevine with cutting her blood sugar below diabetic levels, discovering she was at risk for heart failure, and inspiring her to bring little notebooks to her appointments. And then I try to ask three questions for the doctors. I say, what's wrong with me? What's our plan? And what else do I need to know that you didn't tell me? So I could hear her voice in my head. Avon is a case study for the potential of Grapevine. Lisa points to the impact Grapevine has had on Avon's health as she pitches insurers to take a chance on her young company. AmeriHealth Caritas DC was first to sign up, inking a contract in the summer of 2021. Once we connected, it was like kindred spirits. Karen Dale has been the plan's CEO and Keith McCannon's boss for about 10 years. It was just, Karen, what about if you had different conversations with people, right? It's not about, well, we need you to go get your eyes checked, your foot checked, your, you know what I mean? Don't start there. Start with simply understanding a bit more. Still, Karen had questions, namely... Did this approach work with lots of people, more than just a few here and there? 
Could Grapevine improve the health of their members and save them money? For me, it's important to step outside of what we're always doing, which isn't giving us overwhelmingly awesome results, to say, let's invest in the research and the body of work to be done to get better, because who we serve deserve it. Grapevine's first job? Working with AmeriHealth members with diabetes, Lisa and her team interview patients who do things like get eye exams to prevent blindness and the patients who don't. Then... But now it's time for us diabetics and pre-diabetics to start getting our regular checkup. They make videos to convince more people to take preventative steps. Go to your doctor. Get the correct information. It will save your life. And then, Karen says, AmeriHealth will measure to see what works. Did people open the message? How long did they watch it? You know, there are all those kinds of statistics that will help us to understand which messages are more sticky, worth repeating, taking the scale. Lisa is excited. If these videos improve people's well-being and save AmeriHealth money, that's the kind of quantitative evidence that Lisa needs to land more contracts. She says she's pitched around 20 different insurers, and most of them, so far, have said no. Their concerns are primarily that we're a young company and that we don't have the proof points that tell them, can this health information keep people out of the hospital. Even if Lisa can deliver that proof, she's also clear that Grapevine has its limits. The expectation is not that every person who comes in contact with Grapevine will automatically have an aha moment and they do the next best thing we need them to do. That's not how it works. Some people need more than a video to make a change. People may be in crisis or struggle with transportation childcare, or just can't find a doctor who takes Medicaid. The task for Lisa is convincing the healthcare world that Grapevine is part of the solution. To me, it's so clear all roads lead to trusted health information and understanding health and healthcare. But the challenge is how to make it obvious to everybody else. When doubts do creep in, Lisa thinks of all the people she's talked to the past 20 years. Friends and family, confused and frustrated. Yvonne Smith, trying to beat her family's history of disease. That woman outside the hospital, totally lost. They're why Lisa left her prestigious health policy career. She wants to give them what they deserve. Clear answers from someone they can trust. That was Dan Gorenstein reporting. He's the host of the health policy podcast, Tradeoffs. We'll put a link to their show on our website at whyy.org slash The Pulse. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about black health and ways to address health disparities in terms of access, treatment, and outcomes. I just finished my first year of medical school. Joelle Burvel first got on TikTok to document his journey as a new medical student. He's Ghanaian-American and attending Washington State University. A lot of people ask me if medical school is hard. And the short answer is, yeah. There's a lot of studying. We have to learn how to do things like CPR. We study how to use machines like ultrasounds to see a patient's internal organs. The future doctors of America. 
But then in 2020, he became interested in more serious topics because of several tragedies. Ahmad Arbery was murdered while out jogging. He was 26, the same age as Joel. Brianna Taylor was killed by police in her own apartment during a botched raid, and then George Floyd was murdered by police. The entire country was reckoning with racism and its effects, and Joel wanted to contribute to this conversation. And I kept asking myself, I'm a medical student. I've seen biases in my own life. How can I actually add my voice to the mix in a field like medicine, where I know there's biases that exist? But most people don't actually even know about that. So Joel started to look into examples of bias in medicine and medical treatments, and he found a research study about pulse oximeters. They are small devices, sort of shaped like a little box that clip around your finger. They measure the saturation of oxygen in patients' blood. They are used all the time in medicine. Any time a patient comes into the ER or has any procedure. And they were especially important during the pandemic as a first check in terms of how sick patients were, how much they were struggling to breathe. Joel read the study and he saw that pulse oximeters don't always get an accurate read on people with darker skin. The study showed that because of differences in how darker skin absorbs light, black patients were nearly three times as likely to have inaccurate, overestimated oxygen levels compared to a white patient. He wanted to get this information out there, and so I made a 30-second video, posted it on TikTok, and it ended up going viral with over half a million views. And doctors and nurses talking about how they use this every day, but never knew that it had this bias within it. And I guess without you putting this information on TikTok, this study would have been out there, but a lot of people would have never seen it, never heard about it. Exactly, and that's the thing about academic papers like this that have huge significance for the general population. Oftentimes, they're either a hard to read, and so the general population can't read through it, or b they're locked behind paywalls, so they can't even be accessed. And you heard from somebody who had seen your video and then basically took that information into a pretty serious situation. Yeah, I get. I've had a lot of people reach out and say they actually have my video saved, so that when they go to the hospital. They actually show the video to the doctors, and someone reached out and said that they went to the hospital and they were worried about their health. They felt like they weren't breathing well, but this device was showing that their oxygen saturation was normal. And so the doctor was like, "Hey, maybe you can go home. You might just be having a panic attack." But the person had seen my video a few weeks before and said, "No, I need to stay at the hospital right now. I don't feel well. I don't think this device is accurate to how I'm feeling right now." Later on, they actually ended up crashing, and the physician said that if that person had gone home, it's possible they wouldn't have survived. Joel says he sees TikTok as a great place to disseminate information and to bring it to as many people as possible. I like to think of myself as a science educator or a science communicator, trying to take these complex ideas, specifically around healthcare disparities, and translating them so that people can better understand and use it to take control of their own health. One of my series that do the best is called Dermatology Conditions on Darker versus Lighter Skin, and all I do is point out what a condition looks like on lighter skin and on darker skin. And the reason why I do this series is because when you go to Google, you go to Bing, when you go to Yahoo and type in some skin condition, let's say eczema, all the images on the first page you're gonna get are on lighter skin. But conditions, even though the pathology is the same, can look different on darker skin. 
Joelle says that a lot of biases and false assumptions about racial differences have made their way into mathematical models that are used in medicine to make decisions about care. So there's literal equations that the only thing being different is your race will lead you to different suggestions down the line of what a patient may have. So one example is this equation called the GFR equation, glomerular filtration rate. It measures how well your kidneys are functioning and filtering out toxins and waste from your body. But for a long time, there was a multiplier for black patients in only black patients that essentially overestimated GFR, meaning that for all black patients, it was assumed that they had better kidney functioning than anyone that was non-black. And what that led to was a difficulty in physicians, primary care physicians, referring to specialists because maybe your kidneys look like they're working better than they actually are. And also difficulty for black patients in receiving kidney transplants because for a kidney transplant, you have to actually show a low GFR number to show that your kidneys aren't working well. So I think that was one of the biggest things that I never learned in medical school, but then started exploring outside and realized these types of equations are rampant throughout medicine for things like testing lung capacity. It's assumed that black and Asian patients have a lower lung capacity just automatically. And the scariest part is oftentimes physicians and doctors that are using them don't even know that these are built into the machines that they're using. How do you think this kind of information affects issues of trust. There is a long history of abuses and mistreatment in medicine of Black patients. And when this kind of information is brought to the forefront, I wonder sometimes, does it add to the mistrust or does it help clear up some of the mistrust? I love that question because I ask about that a lot in my own content. Sometimes I feel like I'm posting so many negative things that I don't want people to be turned away from the healthcare system because there are so many things that we do have right. But at the same time, I think it actually increases trust when we're able to say, here's what we know, but here's what we also don't know. Or here's the things that are changing right now to make sure that healthcare is better for you. Everyone's going to at some point need to go to the doctor. And so my goal is to make sure that when you do have to go to the doctor, you're armed with all the information that you can have in that moment about yourself, about recent literature, especially when it comes to healthcare disparities. But I try and balance it too by talking about these disparities, but also talking about things that we do know, about the marvels that are happening, about new breast cancer vaccines that are hopefully coming out one day, about the need for cervical cancer testing with pap smears and HPV vaccines. And so I really try and talk about preventative medicine too for what people can do and talk about this long history of distrust because I think when we're able to be very honest about how we've gotten here, the things that exist out there, we're able to build authentic, true relationships. That's Joel Burvell. He is a medical student at Washington State University. Joelle's first viral TikTok was about a new study on pulse oximeters, which found that these little devices that clip on your finger and measure blood oxygen saturation often don't get an accurate read on patients with darker skin. It's an important issue to address. A wrong measurement could make the difference between stepping up care for a patient or not. But improving pulse oximeters is challenging and complicated. Alan Yu has more. The Food and Drug Administration has gotten interested in the problems with pulse oximeters, and they turned to Mike Lipnick for help. Mike is a researcher at a lab at the University of California, San Francisco, that specializes in low oxygen conditions. 
Several things can throw off the accuracy, like a patient's temperature, but let's focus on skin color. A quick reminder on how pulse oximeters work. They shine light through a patient's skin to measure the color of the patient's blood. Blood changes color depending on how much oxygen there is. Bright red means a lot of oxygen. Darker red means less oxygen. You can imagine that anything that's disturbing light passing through the tissue might impact the accuracy of the reading. That can include skin tone, which comes from the amount of melanin in someone's skin. It affects how much light goes through a patient's skin, in the same way that wearing sunglasses reduces the amount of light going into your eyes. And when it comes to patients with darker skin, a pulse oximeter is about three times as likely to say that their oxygen levels are normal when they actually have low oxygen, compared to patients with lighter skin. That's from a widely cited article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2020. The first step for Mike and his team is to study just how accurate, or rather inaccurate, the pulse oximeters are. As strange as it may sound, that has never really been done in a prospective manner at large scale. Mike's team wants to know how does a pulse oximeter reading compare to a patient's actual oxygen level when measured in both a lab and a clinical setting. We are recruiting patients who are already in the intensive care unit, who already have lines in their arteries that allow us to get these blood samples. The the lines are already there for other clinical reasons. And there are patients who are already requiring oxygen for various reasons. The blood samples mean the researchers can compare the pulse oximeter to a more accurate, albeit invasive, way of measuring how much oxygen is in a patient's blood. So how much does darker skin color throw off the reading? That gets more complicated than just measuring oxygen saturation because there is no universal way for how to measure skin tone that everyone agrees on. Mike and his colleague Caroline Hughes did a quick demonstration for me on how they measure skin tone now. The most common measure is called the Fitzpatrick scale, which has six color samples you can use to compare against someone. Caroline held up a piece of paper with the color samples next to Mike's face. Mike is white. So in Mike's case, I would probably put him around a two or a three on the scale. I would say probably a three because it looks like you're a little tan right now. So this scale is limited. Humans have a lot more than six types of skin color. There are other scales that offer more options. Next, Caroline takes another piece of paper that has 36 color samples and holes punched out next to them. She puts this piece of paper on top of Mike's hand. We would start with the fingernail surface and move the scale along until we find a number that matches. So in this case, I feel like 13 will match because it feels as though the fingernail is blending with the the color palette. But there is another problem with this approach. It's subjective. You ask one person to to estimate what color this person's skin is, and you ask another person, they may come up with different answers. To get around this, Mike and his team at the lab have a device called a colorimeter. It's what hardware stores and factories use to compare colors. And that can pick up subtle differences that might not be visible to human eyes, leading to potentially infinite variation. But Harvard sociologist Ellis Monk says that is not the most practical solution either. 
if you have a scale that's 40 points or 150 points, do we really expect human beings to be able to reliably make choices, decisions, uh, classifying different skin tones with that many choices? And I would say the answer to that question is no, we shouldn't expect that. It's kind of like the Goldilocks problem or dynamic. You don't want to have too many. You want to have just the right number. This issue of skin color is bigger than pulse oximeters. It's a topic in dermatology and also for computer vision. Ellis's research specializes in skin tone and colorism, the idea that people with darker skin face more discrimination, even within their own racial or ethnic group. Ellis is black, and when he was growing up, he noticed the variation of skin tones within his own family. Some people had darker skin, some people had lighter skin, and could even pass for white. And that, of course, leads to the question, well, what's our measure of skin tone? And is that measure of skin tone something we, we can rely on to actually classify these differences in a reliable manner and something that is faithful to the different skin tones that we see out in the world around us? So he also needs a better scale for measuring human skin tones. And he specifically needs one that social science researchers can use in surveys. Based on his fieldwork in the US and Brazil, he came up with his own scale, which carries his name. It's called the Monk Scale. One thing that was really clear to me was that I only was going to give myself 10 swatches, basically, because that, based on everything that I've seen in the literature, is kind of the sweet spot in terms of how human beings can use something like a skin tone scale without being overwhelmed by the number of different choices. Ellis announced his scale last year at Google's annual developer conference, Google I.O. He's working with Google to implement the scale and make better computer vision software. Those programs have traditionally had issues with detecting darker skin because they relied on the Fitzpatrick scale, which again has only six choices. Maybe a month or two after the Monk Skin Tone scale was launched at Google I.O. last year, several black dermatologists reached out to me and they were super excited precisely because uh, it seemed that they would have an alternative to the Fitzpatrick scale. The Monk scale is also one of the tools Mike Lipnick and his team now use to study the accuracy of pulse oximeters to measure exactly how much skin tone throws off the readings. At the same time, one engineering team is working on getting around the issue of skin color altogether when it comes to pulse oximeters. Kimani Toussaint is a professor of engineering at Brown University. Among other things, he specializes in optics. He heard about the pulse oximeter issue three years ago. He and his PhD student are working on a device that can change the kind of light that a pulse oximeter uses. That way it will respond specifically to the blood oxygen level and nothing else. They showed this work on healthy volunteers. We can get information uh, that was comparable to what you would get from a traditional pulse oximeter. That was proof of concept that this approach has some potential to work. But there was still more effort that needs to go into that. Now they are testing their device, which is a little bigger than a shoebox, on ICU patients at a local hospital. 
but Kimani and Mike Lipnick say their work on making better pulse oximeters will take months, if not years, to finish. That was Alan Yu reporting. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, it's an illness that can be especially devastating for Black patients. Everybody knew who I was. Like everybody, they'll be like, oh, the girl who's black and white, she lives right there. You know, that, oh, you're different. Or it was like, oh, is it contagious? Nobody wanted to touch you. Nobody wanted to play with you. That's next on The Pulse. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about black health and ways to improve outcomes and quality of care. Vitiligo is a condition where patches of skin lose pigmentation. It's unclear what causes it, but it affects millions of people globally. It strikes people of all skin tones, but many agree that the condition has a far greater impact on people with darker skin. Treatment has often not been covered by insurance companies because they consider this illness to be only cosmetic in nature. Advocates are trying to change that, and they are pushing to get more people to understand the true effects of vitiligo. Marcus Biddle has more. For Rita Scarborough, vitiligo started when she was a little girl, with a few small white spots on her dark bronze skin. I was nine years old, and I started seeing these, you know, white spots on my feet. And my mom checked it out, and she was like, okay, this is really strange. She didn't know what it was. She had never seen it before. Rita's mom was African-American, and her dad was Mexican. Growing up, Rita was proud of her complexion and the way her skin tone reflected her family heritage. She went to a doctor to get her white spots checked out. When we first went to the doctor, you know, we just went to a regular medical doctor. And he was like, I, he was like I'm not sure what this is. She was referred to a dermatologist, but even he seemed unsure what to do. He was honest, too. He said, you know, we haven't had many cases like this, you know, so this is new territory for us. He did have one suggestion, a topical cream. But it's not going to do anything to take it away. Like, there's no cure. That part they were clear on. There's no cure for this. Rita's family didn't have enough insurance coverage for the limited treatments that were available at the time. This was in the 1970s. As hard as it was, the only option was learning to live with it. By the time Rita was a teenager, those ivory white patches started to show up around her mouth and her eyes. She says it made her mother feel helpless. It was hard for my mom because people would always stare. You know, she would get angry, you know, because people were staring all the time. And it was hard for Rita, too. She was always teased and bullied. She became known amongst her friends as the girl who wasn't really black anymore. Everybody knew who I was. Like everybody, they'd be like, oh, the girl who's black and white, she lives right there. Whenever I stepped into any space or place, instantly people could see, you know, that, oh, you're different. Or it was like, oh, is it contagious? Nobody wanted to touch you. Nobody wanted to play with you, you know, because they were like, oh, I might get it. Or they just make fun of you just because they didn't understand it. It was very, very hard for me as a young person because I was, I found myself very isolated. You know, I kind of isolated myself as a protection. 
Vitiligo affects people of all skin colors, regardless of race and ethnicity, but it's less noticeable in people with lighter skin. Well, I have vitiligo. It involves half my face. I have a white eyebrow. It has zero impact on my life. That's Lionel Berkovich. He's the director of pediatric dermatology at Hasbro Children's Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. Someone who has dark skin, who has very white, and these are deep pigmented, they're ivory white. They're not just lighter skin, patches on, on dark skin. They're very conspicuous. They have real life effects. Lionel says that vitiligo affects people's sense of image and self-worth. And for people of color, particularly African-Americans, skin color is closely tied to identity and pride. Although there is no cure for vitiligo, there are some treatment options, like phototherapy, where affected areas are exposed to UVB light, or topical creams that can help repigment skin. The price tag for these skin creams can vary. A single small tube, though, can cost between $300 and $2,500. Getting insurance companies to cover these treatments is difficult. Lionel says that some plans might not cover this treatment at all. Others take on only a fraction of the cost. This means people have to pay out of pocket or not get treatment at all. None of the insurance plans in Rhode Island covered treatment of vitiligo. They wouldn't cover phototherapy. They didn't cover topical therapy. Every time we would request prior authorization for treatment, we couldn't get it. What was shocking to Lionel was that many insurance plans considered treatment to only be cosmetic and not medically necessary. Another reason for denial was that the creams were not FDA approved. But now that's changed. A new treatment option for vitiligo is available. Opsilora from Delaware-based pharmaceutical company Insight. It's the first vitiligo cream to gain FDA approval. It's an important step moving forward, but Lionel says that insurance companies might not budge so easily. Even though it's FDA approved for vitiligo, it's unlikely that patients are going to easily get coverage for it. Given that vitiligo is far more noticeable in people with darker skin, and given how much the condition can affect their well-being, this is an important health equity issue, says dermatologist Amit Pandya. When you go to a grocery store and you see an African-American person with vitiligo, you can tell from across the store that that person has vitiligo. But if you're a Caucasian, you can walk right past people in the grocery store and people won't know you have vitiligo. And that my patients who are Caucasian have told me, they say, doctor, this is a distinct advantage I have. Amit is president of the Global Vitiligo Foundation and practices dermatology in Sunnyvale, California. He describes a first-time vitiligo diagnosis as a grieving process. They undergo so many emotions, fear, feeling of loneliness, of being the only person in, in the world with this, anger, shock. He says that the new FDA-approved treatment is a great start, but it will take extra advocacy to make it available to more patients. As for Rita Scarborough, She's now married with two children, living in New Jersey, and has made a decision to not receive treatment for her vitiligo. I think the part like the topical and all the things, the medicines and all that, that's all fine and well, but then you have to think about what are the side effects, you know, and then how much is that going to cost me? Do I have to do this for the rest of my life? Rita still notices people staring, and people still ask her annoying questions. 
But now she has a different reaction. It's funny because people would ask me, are you white or black? Remember when Michael Jackson came up with that song? Are you black or white? That was like my anthem for a minute. And I would say, yeah, sing that song. I would sing it and then I'd be like, guess. (laughs) I want you to guess. It's become her favorite song, a tune that's helped her realize that what people think she is doesn't matter. What matters is that Rita knows what she is. She knows how she was brought up. She's more determined to be the best advocate for herself than she ever was. No matter what vitiligo does to change her skin, she's not letting it define her. I'm a black woman, and I'm proud to be a black woman. I'm a black woman with vitiligo. For The Pulse, I'm Marcus Biddle. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our Health Equity Fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Nicole Curry is our associate producer. Lindsay Lazarski is our producer. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Schizophrenia and Psychosis Action Alliance, working to shatter barriers to treatment, survival, and recovery so that people with schizophrenia can thrive. They're one of the few advocacy organizations focused only on schizophrenia and psychosis, and as a result, have a deep understanding of this brain disease. They actively partner with like-minded organizations to conduct research, improve access to resources, and empower individuals with schizophrenia and their families. More at WeCanThrive.org. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning wherever you get your podcasts.